Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we thank our viewing audience for being with us today. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to our city, to our province, and to Canada. And you know, I rarely get to do this, if ever, but today is a special occasion, so I'd like to ask those board members who are in the room, if you would please stand, and would the audience please help me recon, uh, recognize this dedicated, energetic, hardworking board. Board members? Club's youth and young leaders programs, civic action diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. We thank you for joining our conversation. And before I formally introduce our speaker, I'd like to remind you that we have some exciting upcoming events, including the event we announced this morning. Justin Trudeau, leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, will be with us on Monday, May 11th, to share his vision on the future of our country. For a full listing of the club's events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. And I'd like to express special thanks to today's event sponsors, Discern and Bruce Power, and audiovisual sponsor Van Van Valkenburg Communications. Thank you all for your generous support. I'd also like to introduce our invited youth and young leaders with us today. They are Aboriginal young leaders from Queen's University, University of Toronto, and the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business, sponsored by Blair Franklin Capital Partners, Ryerson University School of Politics and Governance, and the Monk School of Global Affairs Alumni Network, sponsored by Julie DiLorenzo, DeMonte Development. Youth and young leaders, would you please stand so that we could recognize you? Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing the Canadian Club of Toronto's 2014 Lifetime Achievement Award recipient. He is the quintessential world leader and advocate. 
This year's recipient is the Right Honorable Paul Martin. Canada's 21st Prime Minister has dedicated his illustrious career to advancing causes that have long-lasting, positive impacts on millions of lives. As Finance Minister, Mr. Martin was credited with erasing Canada's deficit and recording five consecutive budget surpluses. One example of his global leadership was his role as inaugural chair of the finance minister's G20, and that's the international group of finance ministers and central bank governors. From 2003 to 2006, he led our country as prime minister. He spearheaded the 10-year plan to improve health care and reduce wait times. He helped establish the first national early learning and child care program and the historic Kelowna Accord. The Accord was established. Yeah. The Accord was established to eliminate funding gaps in health, education, and housing for Canada's Aboriginal communities. Mr. Martin has continued his support of Aboriginal initiatives after retirement from federal politics. The Martin Aboriginal Education Initiative focuses on elementary and secondary education for Aboriginal students. The Capital for Aboriginal Prosperity and Entrepreneurship Fund invests in Aboriginal businesses. Other examples of his global, global leadership and influence include his chairmanship of the Congo Basin Forest Fund. He also serves on the advisory council of the Coalition for Dialogue on Africa. In addition to this, he is a commissioner for the Global Ocean Commission. This afternoon, our 2014 Lifetime Achievement recipient is joined in conversation with the Honorable Frank Iacobucci, retired Supreme Court Justice and former leader of the University of Toronto. I invite our live audience to join this conversation by filling out the question cards on each of your tables. Volunteers will come around to collect them later on in the program. And I'm now going to call on Fred Mifflin, Chair of the Canadian Club of Toronto's Awards Committee, to introduce the award. Fred. Thanks, Jennifer, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. The Lifetime Achievement Award was established by the Canadian Club of Toronto to celebrate lifelong contributions and leadership of extraordinary Canadians. It is an award that we take very seriously. We subjected a list of exceptionally well-qualified nominees to a rigorous selection process. By the end of that process, we were left with the name of one Canadian who has, through his leadership, dedication to public service and inspiring achievements, clearly made a lasting impression on Canada. So on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, it gives me great pleasure to present 
this year's Lifetime Achievement Award to the Right Honorable Paul Martin, former Prime Minister of Canada, staunch advocate for Aboriginal causes, and a champion for Canada around the world. Thank you very much, Fred. Thank you very much, Jennifer. And let me just, before I say, any, say anything else, when I was, when I was about uh, 12 years old, a couple of years ago, I, my father was the Minister of Health and Welfare, and we would travel back and forth between my hometown of Windsor in Ottawa. And we would do this by train normally. And so one time coming from Ottawa, we stopped in Toronto and we got off. And I said, why are we, what are we doing? My dad said, we're stopping in Toronto. And I said, why? And he said, and he had seemed particularly nervous. And I said, what are you working on? He said, I'm speaking at the Canadian Club and you're coming to listen to me which did not appeal. I, this is a much more fun time to be at the Canadian Club. In any, event, in any event, I said, well, why are you so nervous? This is not the first speech you've ever given. And he said to me, the Canadian Club is, beyond any shadow of a doubt, one of the most important podium, podiums in North America for any person in my position to speak. The Canadian Club is where I get to speak. I can speak to Canadians. And I have a number of major issues within my ministry that I want to do, that I want to speak to, and that I want to develop. And there can be no better place than to do this at the Canadian Club. And so for me to get this award from the Canadian Club is something that it's very difficult for me to describe, how touched I am, how really it's, I'm quite lucky to be able to get through this part of my, my remarks. The Canadian Club is one of the most important podiums anywhere in the world that a Canadian can speak to, tell Canadians what it is that they think, develop those thoughts. And so I want to thank you for that very, very much. I also want to thank all of you. You, to, to walk into this room, to see so many friends, so many people that I, to whom I owe so much. The truth of the matter is that if I'm receiving this reward, I am receiving it really because of the work and the help that so many of you have given me over all of these years. And I know I'm only admitting here publicly what you're going to tell me privately later. But I, I, I just want to say, I want to say to you all, to see you here tonight, or this, uh, this noon, is an incredible thing. When a person looks back upon their career, they get an award of this honor, but then they come into this room and they see the people who actually made it happen. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, that's the good news. The bad news 
again speaking to all of those people who helped me so much, is that my email box is going to be full when this is over. The first message is going to be, boy, did you ever screw up. The second meeting is, boy, you were boring. The third, me- the third meeting is, parce que je vais vous parler en français. And the, thir- the third voice is going to be, say, what did you say in French? And, um, <laughs> but in any event, we are together. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to each and every one of you for being here and to the Canadian Club for making this possible. Thank you very much. I'm now going to invite Frank Iacobucci to join Paul on stage and begin a conversation. Frank. Careful, you're going to fall off. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, uh, I think you can imagine that I'm David Frost or somebody, or Peter Mansbridge. I saw Peter Mansbridge, but I'm a poor man's David Frost and Peter Mansbridge, so please forgive me. But I want to start off, Mr. Martin, with uh, the, the Martin Education uh, initiative, uh, because you've had so many uh, interactions with uh, the First Peoples of Canada uh, the, the, through your illustrious political career, and uh, this recent involvement that you've had and commitment you've had on this initiative uh, is extremely important, and I, I think the audience would be interested in learning more about it, so may I ask you to just give some background why you got into it and how you got into it and what it's, what it's presently involved with. Uh, Aboriginal Canada represents um, over 4% of the population of this country. Um, the Métis, First Nations, and the Inuit. Um, that our history from the residential schools to the underfunding of education, to the underfunding of health care, is something that, of which all of us in this room are very much aware. And the consequences are also something of which we are very much aware. If you're going to turn that around, it has to start with the same place that, in fact, it was turned around for all of us, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, that unless, unless any, some of you are the heirs to the British aristocracy, the fact is that it was free and universal public school and secondary school education that allowed you to come here and, and do what you have done to be here today. The fact is that we have replaced the residential schools with an underfunded by the federal government school system that is a national disgrace. And so consequently, in looking as to what I could do when I stepped down from government, which is a euphemism for having lost the election. The, um, <laughs> the um, I, I immediately, I immediately looked, I immediately looked at primary and secondary school education and said, this is where we've got to make the difference. If what you're dealing with is the youngest population in the country, the fastest growing, 
more kids under the age of 15, more people under the age of 25 than anybody else in the land, then you've got to start with their education. And so I, that's, what I start, that's where I decided to start. And we have a number of programs. I won't go into all of them, but I would like to mention one of them. That's a program that Larry Tannenbaum and I are actually involved in together. The, one of the reasons for the high dropout rate is if you don't learn to read or write by grade three, the fact is that you get passed into grade four and you still can't read or write. You get passed into grade five, you still can't read and write. And eventually you get somewhere, grade nine and ten, and you find, suddenly decide this is hopeless and you drop out. Fifteen years ago, the province of Ontario, in order to deal with the problems of literacy in their schools, took the hundred worst schools in the country, or in the province, and essentially brought in a program with specialists to turn that around. That program worked marvelously well. They took the hundred worst schools and they turned them into schools in which the literacy results were better, again, than the provincial average. So where I decided to start in this particular case was I went to the then Minister of Education, who was today the Premier, Kathleen Wynne, and I said, I want your program. Can I have it? She said, yes. And I said, I want to know the people who put the program into place, because it was essentially working with teachers. And what we did was to do a pilot program in two reserve grade schools, one at Kettle and Stony Point and the other one um, at Walpole Island. The purpose of it was to see if this program, then adapted to on, on, two on-reserve schools, could have the same, the same results. And the thing that I wanted to demonstrate, that when a government says, we're not going to give you more money, money isn't going to be the answer. The answer is, you have to give us more money because you're not going to affect reform without it. But if you give, if we have the funding, there is nothing that can stop Aboriginal Canadians. And so what we did is we ourselves funded this program. It was a five-year program based on the Ontario program to see what we could do in terms of literacy on these two schools. And five years later, OISE, the Faculty of Education at the University of Toronto, announced the results of this report. When we went into these two schools, the, the provincial average in terms of reading was at 70%. These two schools were at 13%. Five years later, those two schools, zero to, uh, grades one to three and grades four to six, are in terms of writing at the provincial average, and in terms of uh, in, in terms of reading are at the provincial average, and in terms of writing are above the provincial average. And that was done in a five-year period. And what I will never forget, and it is why this is what we are engaged in, is such, such a worthwhile thing. When one of the chiefs, people say, why haven't they got good education? They haven't got good education because, in fact, the federal government won't pay for it. But it is not, but they are so, the First Nations, the Métis and the Inuit are desperate to see their education better. And the person who put it the best was this, was this chief who stood up with tears coming down his face. And he said, looked at the audience who was there, and he said, you think we can't do it. You think that we're born not to learn. Well, take a look at this. You give us the tools, and we will show you.
and we showed you here. And I've got to tell you something. I have never felt better about the future of Aboriginal Canada than when I heard that chief make that statement, and I believe it. That's great. Mr. Martin, in dealing with all the many uh, Aboriginal issues you dealt with uh, in public service, uh, the uh, Indian Residential Schools that you mentioned, the Kelowna Accord, which was mentioned, uh, what, what, what have you found the most difficult challenge in your experience dealing with uh, all these Aboriginal issues? I think probably for me, uh, the most difficult challenge was realizing what I didn't know. Um, I had uh, first really became aware of the situation when I was, what, 18 or 19, working up on the Mackenzie River in a tug barge, and I did, we worked on the tug barges with a bunch of young, all the young men I worked with were Métis, uh, Inuit, or Dene, or First Nations. And we would talk at night, and, and I really felt that I understood where people were coming from. I understood where the, some of the problems lie. Um, I also found out that I couldn't understand where there was a lack of hope and why there was a lack of hope. I understood that 45 years later when I suddenly realized that I had never heard of the residential schools and, they be, and I became aware of them and I'm amazed at the number of Canadians like myself, my age, who had never heard of the residential schools. But it was really in subsequent discussions and I would, I would ask those of you in this room who are not indigenous to think about this. There is a worldview and a depth of understanding and a wisdom that exists within the various indigenous cultures that is far deeper and far more profound than any of us fully understand, can ever understand. Those of us who were essentially educated in the Eurocentric system grew up to believe that knowledge could be compartmentalized. And we believed that the world was compartmentalized, that up, up, up at top, those of us who believe in God, there was a God. After that, there were, there were human beings, and then there were uh, uh, animals and flowers and rocks. And of course, what the indigenous perspective is, is that this is all one. That it is not, and, and their, the understanding of the environment is not something that can be bought off by some government coming along and saying, I'm going to give you money. It is a fundamental understanding of what this earth and who we are. And the more you get into it, the more you suddenly begin to realize that you're not going to grasp it easily. And you're not going to grasp it because somebody like myself stands up here on a stage and talk, talks about it. You're going to co- it's going to come to you because you're going to spend time and time again talking to people of great wisdom and all, or talking to young people. You'll understand why it is that they say you can't understand the culture without the language. We think we can understand a culture without the language. We think we can understand what we believe, whether we talk to each other in French, English, Spanish, Italian, whatever. But the fact is that their language and their culture are intertwined in a way that I don't think we can understand. There is, we are very privileged to live with a people who were very old, who despite everything that has happened to them down through colonization and down through history, have held on to that culture. And I guess what I would say, Frank, is it's been very hard for me to understand that. It's taken a long time, and I don't think I fully grasp it. But there is a richness there. And I would just simply say that 
If we are North Americans, we should not forget that, and we should make darn sure that our children understand it, if in fact we don't ourselves. I wonder if we could switch to another topic, and it was referred to by President Sloan in her citation uh, for your award, and that is the G20. Um, I'd like to ask you about that, uh, which you were instrumental in, in, uh, in starting when you were finance minister, and, and as was mentioned, you're the inaugural chair of that group. How did you start it? What did it accomplish? How do you feel about it today? In what direction should it go? The, um, when I uh, uh, first became um, finance minister, uh, Canada was in a bit of doo-doo. Um, and uh, uh, the one thing that... Uh, <laughs> that's not the word I used. The, um, uh, it, 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 and, but what, what frightened me more than anything else was that there was going to be some kind of a financial crisis. And I knew there was going to be a financial crisis because there's a financial crisis every three to four years. And I knew when that one was going to happen. And when it happened, um, our interest rates, we were paying 36 cents out of every dollar, um, out of every tax dollar went to servicing the national debt. I was afraid our interest rates were going to go up through the roof and that we were essentially going to be what Greece is today. And um, so... What happened was, in the, before I was able to bring down the, the big budget, um, met, there was a Mexican a, a financial crisis occurred in Mexico, and our interest rates started to, started to climb. We had a G7 meeting, and I said, wait a minute. I looked around the world, and I said, look, this doesn't work. We think we're the seven most powerful economies in the world. Well, Mexico's having a crisis that's driving us, and it's affecting the Italians at the same time. Um, and we've got, to, we, we've got to have a wider group. Well, I, nobody was going to listen to me. Um, and um, so uh, I, I basically made the case. After we had dealt with the big budget, we had dealt with our situation, we were in much better financial shape. The, the Asian crisis occurred. And by the way, if the Asian crisis occurred, had occurred and we hadn't acted on that, on that deficit, we would have been like Greece. Um, I went back with the idea. I basically said, look, the Asian crisis has occurred. We have told, we the G7 have told the, the Asian con- countries what it is they have to do to get out of it. And they told us to get off with it. They've said, no, we're not going to listen to you guys. We're at the table. Or if we're not at the table, then we're not going to, you're not going to basically dictate to us what to do. I said, we've got to expand this. And then I also did something that I hadn't been experienced enough to do the first time. I went to the Amer- American Treasury Secretary and got him on side. You cannot believe what a difference that made. Um, <laughs> And so, essentially, we, we, we put it. Uh, I put it to the Americans. Uh, Larry Summers went along and said, yes, this makes sense. And then between our two, uh, our two offices, we went out to uh, all of the, the existing G7 countries, and we went out to the new countries who were invited to come in. And we basically said, we are going to do this. Now, I'll tell you why. And then, so then the, G, the, the G20 finance ministers were created. Then... I pushed very strongly after I became prime minister to have it elevated to the leaders' level. I had all, there are 19 countries um, make up the G20. I basically explained that. The finance ministers can't count. And, the, um, <laughs> and, and what, what um, but 
I had, we had 18 of the 19 in order to do it at the leader's level. But I couldn't get the United States to join. George Bush never said no, but he wouldn't say yes. Um, and then, of course, as we know, and I congratulate him for this, as a result of the 2008 uh, recession, he created it at the, at the leader's level. I, I'm just going to make two comments here on the G20 before we go on, uh, Frank, which I think are, are really, I think are, are, are really quite important. Um, the first is the world needs a steering committee. You cannot govern the country with 193 nations in the United Nations. Um, we are right now, I believe, on the threshold of a very different world. We all know that it's a world in which economic power will be shared between... All of us grew up, everybody in this room grew up, where we had one economic superpower. That one economic superpower, for better or for worse, mostly for better, was able to set the direction that the world was going to follow. We are now in a situation where there are now two economic superpowers, and we're not that far, in my opinion, from a third, and that will be India. Certainly, if not within my lifetime, certainly within the lifetime of our children. To be in a world where you have three economic superpowers and a whole series of wealthy countries like Canada, like Indonesia will be, like Korea, also who are at the table, is a very different world than a world where one country can set the direction you're going to take. The only way in which that's going to work is if a group of those countries, and I believe it will be the G20, is able to set that direction. And if, I, if there is one thing that Canadian foreign policy must do, it is to make the G20 work. Because if the G20 doesn't work, then I can tell you Canada's voice is going to be lost and there's going to be a conflict between those three gigantic economies. And the second thing, and I'm going to, I've been to Turkey, I was in Turkey not long ago speaking on this, because they're hosting the next summit. The single most important thing the G20 has to do is to support the great international institutions. Just think about what is going on right now in terms of refugees coming out of Syria into Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan. Think about the, think about the refugees that you saw crossing the Med the other day. The fact is that there is no support for the UN Commissioner on Refugees. The fact is that we are allowing people to die as being drowned. We are not going back into the countries to put in place the kinds of means that will allow refugees to be taken care of. We are not building the kind of refugee camps that we should do. Think what's just, I know I'm going on too long, but I just think these are the kinds of things that we as a country can lead on. The fact of the matter is, that these people are coming in, they're going to, some of them are going to be accepted in the countries, but the great bulk of them are going to be living in refugee camps. Now, I ask you something. You've seen the pictures of those refugee camps. I have visited those refugee camps. You tell me what is going to happen 20 years from now when kids who have lived all of their lives in refugee camps with lousy health care, no schooling, no, no, no re reasonable facilities. Tell me those kids aren't going to grow up with a grudge against mankind. And tell me they won't be right to have it. That's what I believe, where I think the UN has to lead. And I can tell you that if Canada were to speak in, the, in that way, if Canada were to recognize the responsibility that these institutions could have and what they could deliver, then I can tell you we will have a foreign policy unlike, unlike one we have seen since the time of Mr. Bush.
Well, I could go on with a lot more questions, Mr. Martin, but there are some questions that uh, members of the audience have uh, submitted. So uh, do you mind if I turn them to them now? <laughs> it depends on the question. <laughs> well, one question is, uh, in your view, what is the most significant threat to Canada as a nation state? Is? As a nation state, what is its most significant threat? Well, I feel... I. I think irrelevancy, and I would say irrelevancy in one of two ways. This is going to be a very different world. We're 34 million people. We're competing with countries, populations of in excess of a, uh, of a billion. Um, and unless, unless we are prepared to play a role internationally, we will be, we will be gar- get gradually margin- marginalized. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that unless we recognize that um, that we are going to have to build an economy that can compete with those people and that that economy is going to require huge investment by governments uh, in order to build the kinds of things that we have to do, whether it, you know, that we are, we are not talking about doing now, investing in research and development, investing in education, investing in, in infrastructure. Unless we're prepared to do those kinds of things, then in fact what we're going to do is be a pretty little country without a hell of a lot to say and a hell of a lot to do. And then the last thing I will tell you that is going to push us into irrelevancy is that if we continue to believe that this country is going to be governed by 10 provinces and a federal government with nothing to say about the direction that the country should take, we're not going to make it. Uh, Another question is this. In 2005, you were the first national leader to invest in Canada's cities and communities to help ensure Canada's future. Ten years later, how do you feel about the progress made and what still needs to be addressed? Oh, well, look, we, we barely scratched the surface of what has to be done. Understand that the when we were fighting the deficit, right, we invested in infrastructure. Now, why did we... Scott Clark, who was the deputy minister at the time, is, is back there in the process of having a heart attack. But the... Um, <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that while we invested in infrastructure, which is, of course, the great demand of Canada's, of Canada's municipalities, three to four years later, what we discovered was, and actually the department had projected it, was that we started to pay that investment back because corporate taxes went up. Individual personal taxes went up. So for every penny that we put in for our one-third, because it was a one-third, one-third, one-third program, the fact is the money came back to the federal government as it came back to the provinces. None of that money came back, and none of that money today comes back, your worship, comes back to, to the municipalities. The fact is the municipalities put up the money for infrastructure, but they don't have corporate taxes and they don't have... Uh, they don't. They don't have personal income taxes, and so what happens is the fact is they're the they're the level of government which actually goes into go, go, goes into debt as a result of, of that that infrastructure program. That's the reason that we brought in the gas tax. So the answer to my yeah, the answer to your question very clearly is that the f- cities are on the front line 
of everything that we face. Every social program exists within the cities, the big, the big cities and the small municipalities. Canada does not compete with China. Canada, uh, um, uh, Canada does not compete with the United States. Toronto competes with Shanghai. Toronto competes with New York. That's where, in fact, the comp- competitive battle is taking place. And what we have got to do as a country is to understand that we are only going to be as strong as our cities are. And that's why we need the infrastructure programs, and we should have done it a heck of a lot sooner than we have done it in the last five years. There certainly is a lot of dissenting opinion out there, uh, Mr. Merton. Will you see the phone calls I get this afternoon. <laughs> um, I wonder, now that you're out of Parliament, I wonder, do you have any comments to, to say about sort of the role of Parliament, perhaps in your time and before your time, and what it is today? Does Parliament exist today? Huh? I mean, look at, look, look, I tell you, I, I, I believe very strongly. I am the son of a, 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 of a political figure. I used to spend time up in the gallery just watching it all happen. Um, there is not, we all understand that there is nothing more powerful than a majority government. Um, a majority government is simply, it is a rule unto itself. The only way in which individual rights, the only way in which the opportunity to examine legislation in a a majority government can take place is if Parliament plays its role. And, um, you know, the the reference, as you heard from the government, when in terms of Bill C-51, when we said, when they talked about Parliament really wanted to play its role investigating the thing, and they said it was a bunch of useless red tape. That's the one single thing that we have got to be the most afraid of. And this would be true of any government, regardless of the political party. You cannot, the executive branch will do what it has to do. It is the responsibility of Parliament to make sure that it is doing it in a way that is fair and that the public interest is taken is taken into account. And I must say, and I say this to you as a, uh, as a former Supreme Court justice, I'm quite embarrassed by the fact that we are going through a period where the Supreme Court has turned down so much government legislation. And I don't believe that all that legislation that has been turned down by the Supreme Court under the Charter would have happened if, in fact, it had been, uh, if it had been examined and debated in Parliament to the extent that it should have been. And I think that's something that we should all take into account. We would allow Parliament to go at our peril. Mr. Martin, it's been wonderful to have this time with you. I know the audience has has enjoyed it, and I would like to terminate our discussion by uh, inviting the audience to show their respect and appreciation.
On behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, I'd like to thank the Honourable Frank Iacobucci for leading a spirited discussion with our 2014 Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, the Right Honourable Paul Martin. As Fred mentioned earlier, this award was established to celebrate the lifelong efforts and leadership of extraordinary Canadians. And Mr. Martin, you are the embodiment of this award. Your long list of contributions to Canada, your ongoing dedication to Indigenous initiatives, and your leadership on global issues are worthy of high praise and celebration. Whether as a businessman or a senior politician, your accomplishments have had an impact. Be they committing resources to issues that affect Canadians, strengthening our communities, or helping vulnerable populations, your leadership has made a difference. Congratulations. And we are impressed by the fact that while your focus may have shifted, your pace hasn't slowed, and for that we are grateful. Please accept our best wishes for continued success in all that you do. Our sincere thanks once again to today's event sponsors, Discern and Bruce Power, and audiovisual sponsor Van Valkenburg Communications for making this event possible. And before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to our survey cards on each of your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience here. So if you could help us by filling out the card and sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you like our new sh shortened luncheon format this season, we'd really appreciate the feedback. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's program. We're also grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the club, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on this special occasion. Our meeting is now adjourned.